Listeners, start your engines. Detours episode 58. Rob here. On this episode, the podcast takes a leap forward, evolutionarily speaking, as we kick off our X Men mega series. This is going up the 23rd anniversary of the original film. It is the 10th mega series, Roman numeral X, X23, uh, because I love to overthink things. So, uh, it's It's been a real blast so far to delve into the X-Men films, and I'm really excited for you guys to take this journey with us, talk about a wild franchise with some crazy big swings uh, throughout, not since, well, <laughs> our last mega series, the, uh, the Planet of the Apes, have we seen such twists and turns uh, in a franchise that featured mutants. So uh, that's kind of an interesting connection as well. But on this episode, Brian Scuttle of the Sonic Cinema Podcast joins us to kick off the X-Men megaseries with the original film from 2000, X-Men, directed by, uh, redacted, interesting. Uh, We'll get into that uh, in the episode, of course, as well as this movie's impact on comic book films, Marvel films, superhero films, cinema at large, uh, which I think is probably underrated, all things considered. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this episode. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation on X-Men 2000. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now seeing the beginnings of another stage of human evolution. The truth is that mutants are very real. And they are among us. We must know who they are, and above all, what they can do. They're not what you think, not all of us. Who are you people? What kind of place is this? I'm Professor Charles Xavier. I built this school where mutants could learn to focus their powers in a positive way. And also learn that mankind was not evil, just uninformed. You'll be safe here from Magneto, a very powerful mutant who believes that a war is brewing between mutants and the rest of humanity. There is a war coming. Be sure you're on the right side. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we are starting our 10th megaseries. Tenth as an X, as an X-Men. So we're doing, uh, for our tenth mega series. we're doing the ten X-Men films. And this episode will be going up on the 23rd anniversary of the original film. Because, you know, I, I uh, if ever there was a testament that I overthink these things, having X-Men be the tenth mega series, ten films starting on X-23, uh, the 23rd anniversary of the original film, there you have it. That's a little behind the scenes of... Uh, how in the weeds I get with the planning of the show. <laughs> but that aside, we're going to be talking about <laughs> the original X-Men film from 2000. And I'm honored to welcome back to the show, 
Brian Scuttle, welcome to the podcast, sir. Uh, thank you very much for having me back. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because of the fact that like, this is, this is the, I don't know, I think fourth, fifth time. I think we've talked on your, either one of your respective, uh, podcasts. And I, I think I've talked more about superhero movies and comic book movies with you than I have on even my own podcast. (laughs) So that's actually kind of interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, with a show that focuses on franchises, that's like the leading subgenre of film right now is superheroes and comic book movies and things like that. And it's really been the proliferation of the movie franchise as a concept. I mean, now we're dealing in shared universes and all of that after all. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it makes it makes complete sense. I mean, you know, it made sense when we talked about Spider-Man three last year and we did the Raimi you did the Raimi trilogy, you have Doctor Strange 2, and, you know, with the announcement, uh, it was when the, you announced, it was when the announcement came along that Deadpool 3 was happening with uh, Hugh Jackman returning as Wolverine that we, that you were the one who, dis- I know you put out that you were going to be doing this mega series, and um, I, I loved it, the chance to do this film, because honestly, I've I've always been a fan of this this film, so I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it. I I think there's a lot to discuss with this film. Absolutely, I mean it's it's become, in hindsight, one of the most you know significant movies of its genre. We can get into like where Marvel as a film brand was in 2000, not in a great place, obviously, like night and day to where it is now. But before we get into X-Men, tell people a little bit about Sonic Cinema and what you have going on over there. So Sonic Cinema is a uh, movie review uh, website, uh, mainly focusing in on uh, film festival coverage, movie reviews, as well as the Sonic Cinema podcast. And, um, you know, you can find that both on the website as well as uh, wherever you listen to podcasts podcast which includes uh youtube and uh that also has uh quick take reviews that i do usually associated with a movie from a film festival uh is basically where the quick takes have taken me over the past few years as well as uh filmmaker interviews that i might do that i don't necessarily include as part of the as as an actual episode of the uh, podcast, but is, is a part of that rotation. And, uh, you know, I had some great ones at the Atlanta film festival this past month. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, this, the run that we're going to have in, uh, the summer of 2023. I, I think we've had some interesting guests and some interesting, uh, discussions in mind. Uh, as well as the Sonic Cinema Patreon, patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. I've got a couple of uh, running series there. One is Leaving the Collection, where I look at a movie for my uh, physical media collection uh, one last time. And basically, it's it's time has kind of come to where I'm, I'm kind of ready to part ways with it. And then uh, also Life Soundtrack, where I look at a uh, an album, whether it's a soundtrack, whether it's a rock album, electronic album, what have you, and why it's in my collection. And those are both at Patreon. Awesome. 
Yeah, that's uh, it's it's really it's really an interesting time, I think, for all of us movie podcasters to really kind of gear up with, the, especially with the summer movie season coming in. Like, are you planning on doing anything specifically timed to any of these big upcoming summer releases? Because there's it's a pretty stacked deck, I think. Um, not not really. I mean, most of what the uh, Sonic Cinema podcast has kind of leaned into more is looking at film from a, a historical perspective. Sure. Uh, like the the next uh, the next couple of episodes, we're going to be looking at filmmakers like John Cassavetes. We're going to be looking at um, specific genres, and that's going to be. You know, and the the genre I'm going to be discussing is going to be with our mutual friend Jason over binge movies, and uh, that's that's going to be an interesting one. Not quite ready to talk about that one. I will say though, uh, sometime in July though, uh, I've got a round table of uh, critics and uh, music appreciators who are we're going to talk about uh, John Williams. And uh, nice. it was an, originally intended as sort of a farewell to Williams because at the time it was at the time I thought about it, he was considering retirement, but now apparently he's not considering retirement. But the fact of the matter is, he is still the greatest film composer of all time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're obviously doing that after uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Has he announced anything? Uh, has he has he announced anything else that he's working on uh, after Indiana Jones? Like, is there a follow up project already? Not, not that I know okay. of. I mean, it's it's weird because of the fact that for the most part, like the past decade or so, has really been either with Star Wars or Spielberg, right? And I mean, Spielberg's been his longest running collaborator. So, uh, you know, I mean, Indiana Jones Five obviously is with James Mangold, the filmmaker whom you will be discussing on this mega series. You know, I mean, it's, and actually, I mean, John Williams, actually, I was looking at trivia for, I was looking at the info for the 2000 X-Men. There's some interesting, uh, there, there's some interesting trivia with regards to John Williams regarding this movie. Um, but no, I mean, I, as far as I know, he, I mean, I, I think it really is dependent on, um, what Spielberg's next project ends up being. And yeah. I, I think, you know, I mean, he's, he's, it wouldn't surprise me if he did decide that, yeah, he's going to hang it up. But the fact of the matter is, it's like, I, I will take as many more great John Williams soundtracks as I can get. Of course. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, now it's, it's interesting that John Williams came up because John Williams obviously, Famously scored uh, the Superman film, Richard Donner's Superman film from 1978, which is, I would say, the, I think everyone pretty much agrees, the granddaddy of all these superhero films that we've gotten. And I think X-Men is, yep. it's debatable whether X-Men or Spider-Man, I think it's between those two that like sort of kicked off what we're now living in. Like the, basically the pre-MCU MCU, like the pre, like it's kind of the, the precursor to what Iron Man started. So um, transitioning into this movie, so the X-Men obviously came out July 14th, 2000, on a budget of $75 million, It made uh, $296 million worldwide, so pretty big hit. What, where were you at in 2000 with X-Men? What was your familiarity with these characters and uh, what were your expectations going into this first big screen adaptation? Well, I mean, you know, like... 
like Spider-Man, I mean, I've never really been a big uh, comic book person. I mean, I've read some comics as I've gotten more and more into comic book movies and stuff like that. So I wasn't really that familiar with the property of X-Men or really Marvel. I mean, I, I do want to say, you know, it's like there are a lot of people who, you know, mention when we have this discussion of like, where did the modern comic book movie uh, boom start? A lot of people mentioned Blade in mm-hmm. 1998, which yeah. is a Marvel property. I, I, you know, it's like, I don't know if I necessarily consider that. I mean, I look at that more in, in the comparison. I mean, yes, it's a Marvel movie, but it was, it was decently successful, but wasn't hugely successful. It's kind of in the same realm of Spawn in that it's kind of a dark comic book movie that's playing off of the success of The Crow, which you and I talked about in Close Watch. Um, so, I mean, as far as, uh, X-Men, I mean, my, my anticipation for was, you know, it was, it was decent, not because of the fact that I was a comic book fan, but because of the fact that at the time I, I was, I was a fan of Brian Singer, the, the Mm -hmm. director. I mean, I love the usual suspects. Um, I, I thought his follow-up film to that at pupil was a very interesting thriller. I mean, I have very, for reasons that I'm sure we will hit on at some point during this discussion. I, I certainly have drastically mixed feelings on a singer now, but I do think Mm -hmm. he's a solid filmmaker. I think he's always been a relatively solid filmmaker, but it really does depend on the script. And I, I think this one is probably one of the stronger ones he's, he had, actually. So, I mean, that's where I came from, from this perspective of this movie and watching this movie. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, my, my introduction, I think, was mostly the, the 90s uh, animated series that they had on Fox Kids at the time in the early 90s. And uh, I had a lot of the, the trading cards and things like that. In fact, I, I wish I could find it. I'm sure I have it somewhere. I had a, I like fan casted a bunch of the different X Men characters ba- based on the trading cards that I had, and I had people like Mel Gibson for uh, Wolverine, which it's funny that they kind of went with an Australian who has sort of a similar swagger to Mel Gibson in his heyday, sort of a Mad Max era Mel Gibson a little bit, uh, and I still had Patrick yeah, Stewart yeah. as as Professor X, so it's like that's the one. The one casting uh, decision that I think most fans were like, well, uh, a smart, bald guy. We got to get Patrick Stewart in there to play Professor X. <laughs> so um, I, I, you mentioned that pupil. Obviously, uh, Brian Singer uh, brought in Ian McKellen and uh, Bruce Davison from that film over to this one. Uh, I, I want to talk about the mm. casting here before we get into this film well, first let's, let's first let's back it up. I want to talk about where Marvel was. So you mentioned Blade. I agree with you. A lot of people always say that Blade was like the OG Marvel movie. And technically, if you want to get really down and dirty, Howard the Duck was the OG Marvel movie. And we actually I actually covered that <laughs> on Close Watch. Uh, wow, what a strange film that one is. Um, so if you you know the the credit for the first screen ad- screen adaptation of uh, a Marvel comic goes to Howard the Duck. And Blade certainly, I think, sort of gave them uh, the opportunity to, to dip their toe 
in the arena of film. Uh, but it's like you were saying, it's it's way darker and way uh, more uh, violent and way more way more graphic than something like you wouldn't. It's not the kind of movie you would sell toys of to little kids. It's not like nobody's gonna have a blade themed birthday party no. at their like seven year olds. You know what I mean? You know that kind of thing. Uh, X Men was sort of the first yeah, no. film in that realm, and then I think Spider Man's the one that really blew it up because. As we'll get into, Spider-Man is much truer to the comic book than this is. This makes uh, even just like the, <laughs> the costuming, which was obviously a lot of people, you know, kind of criticize it now because we live in a world where everybody's getting on Disney Plus or on the big screen or wherever they're getting all these comics accurate costumes. Nobody was doing that in 2000, particularly after... Uh, you know, George Clooney's got the nipple bat suit just a couple years earlier. Like yeah. they were like, all right, all right we're going to tone it way down. And this coming out right out like the year after mm-hmm. the matrix, everybody was a black leather on all of everyone. Just, you know, they get the color and the lining, the stitching of the suits. And that's about it. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on how this, yeah. this is really sort of a, a moment in time, a snapshot of modern comic book movies, sort of trying to, have their comic book properties on the big screen, have the superhero characters, but still shying away from a lot of the iconography that made them famous in the first place. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I I think a big part of that is because of the fact that I I don't think, I I don't remember what Singer's uh, relationship with the comics was. If I remember correctly, he wasn't as that well-versed in the comics either. Mm -hmm. um you know it's 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 funny uh but but yeah i mean i i do think when you especially when you consider the costumes i mean i i do i i can completely see why those iconic costumes will will look very silly in 2000 right i i truly understand why people think they will look silly i i think they worked well when they were brought in for first class because of the fact that basically what you were doing is you were you were following the chronology you were essentially trying to retrofit a chronology into this to where it's like they they start off with those and then gradually you know they they go to something more mature i mean i but i mean yeah you you do look at the black leather suits here it's like yeah i mean in a way it does really tie into the sort of goth and uh industrial uh you know in 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 sense of isolation that a lot of protagonists in superhero movies or superhero adjacent adjacent movies like the matrix uh played into in the late 90s early 2000s um yeah you're you're absolutely right about that i mean i obviously i mean i can't speak quite as well to the other comic book accuracy but yeah i mean spider-man was definitely the one that blew it up but i mean you know you i i think uh after x-men because of the fact that x-men was a success uh you had daredevil from fox which you know is what it is and then you had x-men too so i mean it's it's this definitely got the ball rolling i mean spider-man just happened to just take it to a completely different level 
for a lot of for a lot of the re- for the exact same reasons we talked about when uh, we were talking about in the Mega series. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Spider Man also had the Spider Man still the most recognizable Marvel character, I would say globally. Yeah. And uh, so it makes sense that that would be the movie too. And and I, I mentioned on the episode I did with the Lady Wan on on the original film. It's also coming out like nine months after 9-11, very New York-centric story. It had yeah. that all kind of going for it. Everyone needed a, needed a hero, needed an escapist this kind of story like that around that time. Um, but this one, yeah, really, this, oh, this yeah, cracked definitely. the door open and then Spider-Man just like slammed it oh, all the way open for everybody to, yeah, yeah. like you were saying. And then we yeah. were getting Fantastic Four and uh, two different Punishers and like all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, it's it set the the ground for um, Iron Man to do its thing, and also incidentally, this is the first Marvel movie to bear the uh, a credit for a little guy known as Kevin Feige, who uh, was associate producer on this mm-hmm. movie and was involved in the the two sequels that followed as well. Um, before I guess really honing in on the MCU. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of history. Mm-hmm. It's very in the in this in the annals of superhero cinema, X Men two thousand definitely one of the more uh, pivotal films of the last few decades. Well, I mean, you mentioned uh, the original Superman, directed by Richard Donner, who is one of the executive producers on this movie. Yeah, Richard Donner, and him and his wife uh, Laura Shula, Shula, Shuler uh, Donner in their uh, production company were producers on this movie. And I mean, you know, it's like it look, I mean, if if you've seen Superman Returns, you know how much Brian Singer absolutely is obsessively in love with Superman 78. I mean, yeah. and he basically did the exact same type of story with Superman Returns, which but I mean, we're not talking about that, but I mean, I don't think you can you can't talk about his time in the X-Men movies without talking about that, because Mm -hmm. it was because of the fact that he he that's that movie is the reason he didn't do the last stand. So that's the reason that movie was the movie that we ended up getting um, for better or worse. And uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, can you know, I. And the thing is, it's that Donner connection. I mean, that's, you know, Singer approached Patrick Stewart to play Xavier on this have conspiracy theory, which was Donner's film. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just want to go through some of the cast that absolutely could have had. Let's do it in in X-Men because and it's funny because of the fact that it's like you you mentioned Mel Gibson and obviously Hugh, Hugh Jackman um, was the choice there were a lot of Australian people who were possibly Wolverine. In addition to Mel Gibson, you had Russell Crowe, who was the first choice to play Wolverine, but he turned it down. He's the one who actually recommended Jackman. Doug Ray Scott was going to be Doug was going to be Wolverine, but he had scheduling conflicts because of MI2. Yep. And then, it's and then they ended up going with uh, Jackman and I guess uh, Vigo Mortensen was a possibility as well, but yeah, I mean he he didn't want to sign probably on for shooting multiple films, he, which is he was probably shooting Lord of the Rings in like ninety nine or like maybe he chose that over this 
It was around oh, yeah. the same I mean, time. He, he, well, I mean, and, and again, well, I, I think this was probably, this probably predates Lord of the Rings starting mm-hmm. um, because of the fact that, but I mean, look, he was, he was a late addition to cast of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he was, so it's, it's one of those things, but also we, we almost got Jim Caviezel as Cyclops. Oh, wow. Think about that. It's like, we could have theoretically had a movie with Mel Gibson and Jim Caviezel. As Wolverine inside, fighting over Fonka Johnson. I don't know how, (laughs) as well as directed by Brian Singer, I don't know how to watch this movie. We didn't even mention yet the script doctoring by Joss Whedon, which we will get to, I guess. We'll get to because of, <laughs> because of a one specific of the line. dumbest lines in the history of a movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, and then Rachel Lee Cook was possibility for Rogue. Charlize Theron was a possibility for Jean Grey. It's like, man, you look at some of you look at some of the cast that was considered. And I'm not including Michael Jackson because apparently he campaigned for Xavier but was never considered by the studio. But it's like, that's such a left field choice. But yeah, I, I, I just don't even know. He, can, he campaigned for a lot of things. Didn't he want to be Peter Pan? And at one point, I think he wanted to be Peter Pan and hook yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's all for the better that we never got that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's interesting that like McKellen, you know, we've talked about the fact that he was an apt pupil and an apt pupil. He's playing a Nazi. And in this movie, he's playing a survivor of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting that we've got the dichotomy going on um, with his characters in these two uh, these two movies. Absolutely. Yeah, I I I want to talk about. Well, you, first of all, you mentioned Donner. Is there do you how do you think Donner's movie Donner's Superman uh, influenced Singer's version of the X-Men? Do you see a lot of common DNA or in the approach to this to the story as far as the adaptation is concerned? I, I do think there's a these I, I do think there's a certain degree of what Donner one has very famously said about Superman verisimilitude. And that's basically creating a reality that people will believe. I do think to a certain extent there is an element of that in X-Men and X-Men 2. I I think there is a sense of reality to the world that he creates in these these first two movies. Um, So, I mean, I definitely think that was a big part of it. But, uh, you know, there's there's not really a whole lot as well. There's not really a whole lot in addition to that. Like this, this is such a tough. This is such a weird movie to talk about because of the fact Mm -hmm. that this ended up this ended up coming out much earlier than was anticipated. It was originally set to release in Christmas of 2000, but Fox moved it up. And so that meant that Singer had less time to make it, to work on it. And I think you can kind of tell that. I, I think you can I, I think you can see that. But I do think that one of the things that this movie does exceptionally well, and it's one of the reasons that's still arguably one of my favorite 
uh, movies in the X-Men series is, and we'll get to it more, is the dynamic between Wolverine and Rogue. I think having, honestly, having them at ultimately the as the heart of the movie, I, I think is a big part of the reason we buy into this uh, into this story the way we do. Well, it's it's interesting that this is a obviously superhero team uh, of mutants and they have all these crazy powers and all of that. But we start with a Patrick Stewart voiceover about evolution and mutation. Uh, we, we, we then go to Nazi occupied Poland and we see young Magneto kind of, I guess, developing his powers for the first time. Then we follow, uh, then I think is, I think the rogue scene where a, a young teenage, teenage yeah. teen girl has her first kiss and that goes, you know, disaster strikes. And then we go to a, uh, a Senate hearing, essentially, where they're talking about the Mutant, Re- Mutant Registration Act. So it's all like all table setting within the matter of like five minutes. You, you are already completely enveloped in this world. And whenever you have Patrick Stewart voiceover yeah. starting off, you have that immediate gravitas. I think it's it's really kind of striking now. Even watching it this time, I I watched it with my wife, and she had, she'd seen it before. And she when we got to the Magneto part, which is just almost basically the opening scene of the movie, she was like, "Oh yeah, that's right. This starts with this." I was like, "I I know you don't you don't. It's the complete <laughs> opposite of what you expect an X Men movie uh, to start with, especially nowadays where we're you know Guardians of the Galaxy and everything else. It's like kind of you know even Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one has like kind of a stark emotional opening uh, like this. Um, so, so what do you what are your thoughts on mm-hmm. how this start? Like, there's a lot of uh, ground setting set in the near future, and uh, some of the themes of this movie right off the bat. It feels particularly relevant these days, encroaching on people's rights, and uh, obviously having Bruce Davis and Senator Kelly sort of going thrown into the mix. Uh, as far as like the, the political statement that this movie makes, I guess out, out right out the gate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's like this. This if this movie look if this movie came out now it would be decreed as being too woke like it really would by all <laughs> the worst people imaginable and I mean it's but the fact of the matter is it's like I will say one of the things that Singer and his screenwriters and the ones that really helped shape this screenplay uh, one of the things they did well is they made it explicitly about discrimination about the right. fact that this is this is about oppression of a minority and i mean you know look the the holocaust the holocaust scene to start the movie is it's still kind of jarring and i mean i can see to a certain extent why somebody why some people might think it it to a certain extent even might might trivialize the the Holocaust because I mean we're less than a decade from Schindler's List we're you know we're a few years away few years uh, past Life Is Beautiful so I mean we've had a couple of years before uh, the the pianist so I mean the the Holocaust is obviously something that in pop culture had really started to assert itself mm-hmm. in in a pretty significant way can in terms of creatively speaking. So, I mean, starting it that way is a bit jarring for a blockbuster, certainly. But when you consider the fact that it's building, 
it's establishing the character of Magneto, uh, McKellen's character. It makes sense to have it that way and to have him be somebody who's seen the worst of discrimination that humanity can give. And I mean, I know uh, Ian McKellen, one of the reasons he wanted to do the film is because of the allegory of the film with regards to the gay community. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's still very explicit. And I mean, you know, you, you think about that in terms of the time and the time and culture that we were in were we were at the time we were not necessarily as accepting of uh lgbtq people at at the time and i mean grand we're backsliding on that now but uh which makes this even more which honestly makes this even more relevant uh but at the same time it's it's one of those things where it's like i do think I, I think thematically they did a strong job, a stronger job of getting this in a way that is accessible than a lot of other films had done at the time. And I think that's why it uh, connected with people. I think that's a big part of the reason why it connected with people. Even if it's not comics accurate to the characters, emotionally i think it you you do see that as it's art in the right place yeah absolutely and it tells you everything you need to know about magneto right off the gate i think it's probably still why look looking back on these movies ian mckellen's magneto probably still maybe my favorite character in this original trilogy or or in general in this franchise because he is so extreme but because in that one moment we understand exactly he's like you know, people like to use Killmonger as the go-to example. I'm like, well, you know, his methods are a little intense, but I get where he's coming from. And in some respects, he is right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you see that same thing with Magneto throughout this franchise. I just, uh, as of this recording, I'm just getting ready for these first few episodes. I just rewatched X3 and the people are, you know, the cure gets weaponized in that movie, just like Magneto has been saying this whole time. They're going to turn against us. They're going to strike, you know, that's, yeah. he's not wrong. Uh, maybe, you know, murdering a bunch of people on your, on your way to maybe mutant supremacy isn't exactly what should be the goal, but you know, his, he, he has had experiences in his life epitomized by, um, you know, the Holocaust experience in the, in Auschwitz. So, uh, he's not, you know, he, he, he has an understanding of history and where this trajectory is going. He sort of sees it, you know, sees down the yeah. little further down the road than most of his peers. And I think that casting McKellen and Stewart, I think, is the best decision this franchise made because if you're not hooked by mm -hmm. those first few minutes, that conversation immediately after the Senate hearing with uh, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart, and they're talking about um, Charles and and uh, Magneto were talking about, you know, oh, mankind has evolved, and he's like, I've I've heard these arguments before. It's like we've been through this. Like the fact that we have a the leader yeah. of this superhero team and the the arch their arch enemy are sort of arch nemeses, but also kind of best friends at the same time. Uh, I think that's pretty unique in this in this sort of uh, superhero space in general. And also, obviously, people like to you know people often draw the comparison to the Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, just kind of standing for the same thing, but in with you know different approaches. 
I think that there's so much of yeah. that uh, these films is is hinges on that relationship. I mean, I know, like you said, this one, this film specifically is Wolverine and Rogue, but like the pendulum of the entire, like most of the ten movies that we're gonna, I'm gonna talk about on this mega series, is all boils down to uh, Xavier and Magneto. And even in this film, I mean, those first few minutes, you understand the dynamic between Xavier and Magneto right yeah. away by end of that conversation in the Senate hearing. You understand those two characters at perfectly. They haven't really even done mm-hmm. anything yet. They haven't done anything to call themselves as the hero or as the antagonist, as the villain, whatever you want to call Magneto. But the fact of the matter is, you still understand why these two characters are on the same are on the sides that they are on. And, you know, the the introduc- the fact that they introduced Rogue before the Senate hearing is important because of the fact that it emphasizes what Jean Grey is yeah. talking about and what people like Bruce Davidson's Davidson's senator can't understand and that is Jean Grey's not looking at this from a standpoint of oh these people can be crooks or these keep people could be anything she's looking at this as, these are human beings who are really struggling with something and society is making it worse mm-hmm. for them and i mean look at and look at what happens to rogue it's like just after that first scene, we don't know if she's been kicked out by her family or whether she's left on her own. We don't know. It gives us it it gives us so much ambiguity, but you can see either way. But otherwise, but the fact of the matter is, she feels like an outsider. She feels like an outcast, and so and that's what and having somebody like Paquin who's only six years removed from Mm -hmm. an Oscar is such an important part of this, of this character working. Rachel Lee Cook, who have done a really interesting job as Rogue. You need somebody with the gravitas that Paquin had already shown to really make this work. I think so too. I I mean, there's, there's a whole other, there's a whole other issue with Rogue where, you know, people who know the characters in the comics, they didn't, this is far removed from the way she is depicted there. And I think that's a fair criticism. But for, as far as this movie presenting young Rogue and now just first discovering her powers, she 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 is the vessel through which this movie humanizes the cause, like you're saying, of the, not the 30, 30 somethings yeah. and above who are like living in the haven of, uh, in safe haven of Xavier's mansion. Uh, the the teenagers that are discovering this for the first time that are being that are that are again to the allegory discovering that their their sexuality or you know discovering how the world sees them or whatever like I, I think you can extend that and some of the actors over the years have have said as much you can extend that to the LGBTQ community or to racism or misogyny or whatever I think Halle Berry spoke to that uh, that affects something uh, you know with regard to the third film. You know, treating that like I'm going to play the scene like the cure is we're going to cure you of being a black woman, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. if you look at it, the, the story from that perspective is particularly with Magneto's plan 
which is essentially to irradiate the world's leaders and turn them all into mutants. I think it's it's a really interesting that the movie starts by giving you Rogue's plight, and then that way you're immediately sort of more understanding of uh, Jean Grey's perspective. But then also, the the Magneto's plan kind of takes a similar a similar uh, approach in that you know you always hear these these politicians who are. Uh, against one thing until oh it affects their family or affects their own personal life and then they're maybe they're second guessing their their stances on things and that's sort of Magneto's mo is well once I make all the world leaders mutants they might be, feel a little differently about mutant registration and how they legislate and regulate the mutant population I just think that is it's such a it's the more you think about the implications of this movie and its storyline. Uh, and its world, uh, as opposed, you know, uh, applied to the real world that we live in, I think it gets it gets endlessly more fascinating. And it's something that really struck me this time. Um, no, I mean, I, that is absolutely true. And I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we've seen in reality of that is the fact that it's like, uh, you know, yes, people say, oh, their idea thing you know, my feelings about this have changed because so-and-so suddenly it affects me, except for the fact that they, they tend to look, not really look beyond their immediate circle. You know, you, that's, that's one of the things that you kind of see there. And, uh, but I mean, you know, one of the things that McCall, one of the things that Eric is, the thing that's so interesting about Eric's plan here is that yes, on the one hand, oh, I'm going to make everybody mutant. I'm going to make them understand sort of how we feel. But he also is, even when he's presented with the reality of, oh, by the way, uh, your plan's going to kill people. He, he, he's not, he's kind of dismissive mm-hmm. about it because of the fact that he, he really, he, he's, he's not really, uh, he he's he talks a lot about sacrifices and now um and how Xavier uh really does not necessarily want to sacrifice for the sake of um for for the sake of uh his his ideals but that's because for in uh in the case of Xavier he his ideals lead him to think that uh he he it leads him to hope for the best as opposed to as opposed to thinking of right. the worst. Well, we learn later on in the in the franchise that uh, Xavier grew up with money, very privileged life uh, up to this point. So it's, you know, it's it speaks to how they uh, their perspectives were shaped by their experience later on, I think. And then and then we yeah. you know, we sort of see the uh, the beginning of their friendship and all of that. Uh, but then what I like about this movie and you sort of mentioned with Singer's direction is that there is for a superhero movie, especially nowadays, there's a sort of a certain, I don't know, intimacy, almost almost griminess to moments of it, at least like some of the, uh, especially the Wolverine introduction in the the sort of cage fight sequence. Is a lot of it is shot more like a character mm-hmm. drama than uh, a superhero action film, and I think that's that's the kind of freshness that I feel like you get when you pull someone out of sort of the you know, indie is not exactly an indie film, but sort of the, you know, from, from the, uh, someone who's most known for making a 
low to mid budget crime drama and have him, you know, apply him to the blockbuster treatment. I think it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting matchup for the for Singer in this material. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, look, in Usual Suspects was an independent film. I mean, it was Gramercy. It was it was it was it was a very low budget film. I mean, I I you know, and then his previous film, Public Access, was that at pupil was Sony, but I mean, it was still yeah. mid to low budget. So, I mean, he was basic for all intents and purposes an independent filmmaker at the time. And um, I, you know, and I, I do think that that helps. And I mean, he's got a lot of the he he's at least in terms of uh, the cinematography, he he has a Newton Thomas Siegel, who is a uh, who was a frequent collaborator with him uh, before this film. Um, not the same editor slash composer, which we will talk about. Um, but there were reasons for that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of those things where it's like, I, I do think to a certain extent, you can definitely see where, uh, singers more independent sensibilities came from when it came to, when it came to, uh, telling this story. And I, I think that's, I, I, that's one of the things where you do have to give credit to Fox, to the Donners for giving them, giving him a chance to find his way into this, this story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's, I, it's interesting too, because the, the major, Basically, the the X factor, for lack of a better term, or pun intended, whichever you want to, whichever you want to apply there, uh, here in this story is we mentioned uh, Magneto and, and Xavier as sort of the pendulum for this franchise. So this is the entrance of Wolverine into it. Obviously, Hugh Jackman, pretty much unknown here in the states uh, at this point. And, mm-hmm. you know, people like to complain or, or at the time, I guess people were like, well, he's too tall because Wolverine is supposed to be, you know, small and, and like stocky and more like a Bob Hoskins type, basically, than uh, Hugh Jackman in, in, in the comics. And I think at this, I, I think once he was in this, put in this role and we saw him at least a, by, by movie two, at least all that stopped because they were just like, nope, this is Wolverine now we're we've completely bought into it. Uh, what are you... How do you feel about Hugh Jackman's Wolverine and also the fact that this is kind of an ensemble movie, but also kind of Wolverine's the main character of this trilogy of films? Uh, Do you think that's to the film's detriment or uh, is it an asset given, you know, Jackman's sort of uh, how iconic he's become in the role? Um, I, you know, and I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, it's like if you were going to cast somebody like a Bob Hoskins in Wolverine, I think the audiences of that time, the lar- the general audiences will have had a harder time believing it. I, I truly think they might have had a harder time believing it. Comic book fans will have been overjoyed because it's like, oh, this is who we anticipate, who we want to be. But, I mean, you know, it's like the the Wolverine that we get in this movie in Jackman's in, in these movies from Jackman is very much in keeping with the type of action heroes and action stars were you, we were used to seeing yeah. at the time. 
you know, so I mean, I, I think in that way it made sense to go in that direction. I mean, if Marvel wants to go in that direction, I think they're, I think people are not necessarily going to complain because of the fact that, like you said, they're, you know, they're, they're going to try to do something more in keeping with, you know, comic book accuracy, but who knows what that's going to look like to Kevin mm-hmm. Feige in this case. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you look at Wolverine and I mean, you know, what, what Eric and Charles represent is the, the moral arc of the moral arc of the narrative throughout these movies. Um, what Wolverine is, you know, Wolverine in a way is kind of in a different, he's in a different place than Rogue in the fact that he's, he's lived long with his mutation. He understands his, he, he understands his mutation to a certain degree more, much more than Rogue does. But at the same time, I mean, he still considers himself an outsider as well. And um, I, I think that's a, I think that is an important part. The fact that he is a loner, that he's lived as long as he has without, without too much in the way of humanity, uh, in a way that he, you know, it's like Rogue. It, it makes sense why she would be on board, uh, being a part of Xavier's school, because of the fact that this gives her an opportunity to be around people who are like her and, um, you know, just very much in keeping with very much comfortable, get her more comfortable in her own skin. And with Wolverine, with Logan, he's very much, he's very much not, he, he, he ultimately, I think he's more certainly in this film. I think he is much more comfortable being a loner. And I, I mean, that plays to a different, and it, it's part of what makes the dynamic between him and Rogue so strong is the fact that it's like, you know, he sees this outsider in Rogue a, who's an outsider against her will to a certain extent. And he, but he empathizes with her because of the fact that he, he feels for her while she's on this journey of him of his. And so, and then he becomes very protective of her along the way. And that's one of the things that just really, and, and I mean, that's where having somebody like Jackman works. And I mean, I, I love the fact that it was an unknown mm-hmm. because of the fact that, I mean, if you, you know, it's, 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 it's that movie star iconography. Like if we had had a Mel Gibson, if we had had a Russell Crowe, who Grant wasn't a huge star at this time, but his star was certainly on the rise because I mean this came out the same summer as yep. Gladiator. And, I mean he even before Gladiator he wasn't quite the the big star that a lot of people associate him with being now. Um, but there's still an expectation of what we expect from them if they're in a role like this with somebody like Jackman, you're looking at blank slate. And so I think that's where they, they really struck out. And he's one of those people where you look at a, you look at a 
superhero character, you know, much in the same way a lot of people thought about Michael Keaton and Batman. A lot of people feel like as far as Christopher Reeve and as Superman, you got it right. You you found the ideal person to be this character. And, I mean, you know, there's a reason, I think, that it's going to be very difficult for Marvel to find their own Wolverine because of the fact that, you know, Jackman has been associated with the mo- with the character for so long. It's going to be in so many different ways. It's going to be hard for them to find their own way into the character. It's exactly why I think they should take their time building to Wolverine introduce, you know, obviously introduce yeah. Magneto and Charles Xavier as like we said, sort of the foundation of the X-Men universe and then build your way up to Wolverine. He's not even, he's not, as these movies attest, he's not even part of the initial lineup of X-Men by any stretch of the imagination. So take your time and ease into it. Just like in this movie, he comes into this already established world. They already have the mansion. They already have the jet that comes out of the basketball court and all that other stuff that's cool. And that great uh, montage sequence where we get introduced to the school. Um, But yeah, he, he comes into this world and... And uh, it's immediately clear that he is sort of a pivotal part of this uh, of this trilogy, and especially in this one and the second one, he uh, they're alluding to his history a lot. We get the dog tags. Uh, we we learn about the adamantium claws, his healing. They, you know that about how he he's a lot older than he has seemed than he seems. We start getting like little flashes and memories. But like you said, he's just as lost as as rogue is in some ways, he's still trying to find his place. Uh, having no, having no memory of the last 15 years, just kind of wandering around. Uh, one thing that has always bugged me about the Wolverine, uh, character and his story in here is that they barely touch on his history with Sabretooth in the comics. Uh, he and Sabretooth, and they get to this in X-Men origins, Wolverine eventually. Um, it, one of the only aspects of that movie that I, I do kind of appreciate uh, they're basically brothers, and in this movie, they there's they yeah. kind of tease Sabretooth grabs his dog tags like there's he like there's some recollection like wait a minute I have something like this why does this seem familiar to me but they barely touch on it it's like they meant to get to it in a sequel and then they never circled back to it they just they they went you know Sabretooth was kind of disappeared uh, from the rest of this trilogy and I don't I also. Tyler Maine, obviously, is very limited in his acting ability. He's there just to basically be brute force and be kind of Magneto's muscle, which is a little bit of a missed opportunity. I think Liev Schreiber does really interesting things with that character uh, in X-Men Origins. Again, not a film I'll say a lot of positive things about on that episode, but I do think the way... I do think <laughs> Sabretooth's representation there a lot is probably one of its uh, one of its stronger assets. So in this movie, the way that they handled the Sabretooth... Logan dynamic, it's a little bit of a bummer to me. Yeah, I mean, I I, I I do remember that criticism coming into play, and I definitely I definitely do agree with you about the uh dynamic between Logan and Sabretooth in X-Men Origins. Uh I I know that was one of the reasons why at the time I I was positive on that movie. I, yeah. I thought they did a good job with that. But yeah, it's 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 one of those things where I I think uh I I I definitely think that you have um 
you do have criticisms, obviously, from a comic book perspective in terms of adaptation, but at the same time, you are dealing with... I, I think one of the things that a lot of comic book fans tend to forget in these movie adaptations is the fact that they are adaptations. Sure. And they're adaptations into a completely different medium. And I I think in with that comes different different um ideas, different views, different ways of presenting things that I think might work better in a cinematic perspective than they d- would in a than than they would in a comic per- perspective. If they had given Sabretooth some more uh something else to do or some kind of other history then, then that I might be more okay with it. I think it's more the fact. I, here's what it is: the the main characters, Charles Xavier, Magneto, and Wolverine, are ostensibly the three leads of this film, right? In varying degrees, with yeah. Wolverine kind of vacillating as the sort of antihero between these these clear forces of good and evil. Uh, I say evil in, in quotes, evil in the context of the movie. Obviously, we Magneto yeah. is yeah. more complex yeah. than that. Uh, they're so more right. so interesting, so magnetic, and so dynamic, and so complex that we understand all three of their perspectives. And then it's a very mixed bag on both sides. Like I feel like, other than I feel like Mystique maybe comes out the best because she's so visually, you know, visually, um, you know, visually interesting. She's you know the color and the way she moves, and and she's got this very like sort of grace and and elegance to the way she fights. I think that character is a little more interesting, even though she does has, has basically one line of dialogue. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of silent acting on the part of Rebecca Romaine, but I think Sabretooth right. and Toad are just sort of, they just feels like sort of nothing burgers underneath this awesome, this amazing like performance that McKellen turns out. So it's, it's like, it's always been sort of frustrating to me that we didn't get more, from at least the Sabretooth perspective. And if, like I said, if they had not done a comics accurate version of that and just done something different, then, you know, I'm of the generation that grew up with the Joker being the one that killed Batman's parents, which is obviously not the way the comic books are. Right. And that was fine. I was like, okay, whatever. That's, I guess that's what we're doing. Um, it, then that would have been cool, but it's just, it feels unbalanced. And that's sort of what I was getting to earlier. Like it feels like as much as this movie is, is a strong start to the franchise, and also really considering it's directed by the guy who did the usual suspect usual suspects it also doesn't feel like it understands exactly how to balance this particular ensemble it basically picks a few and then everybody else i feel like sort of gets short shrift including Halle Berry who's kind of trying to do an accent kind of has a terrible <laughs> wig kind of has not much to do here yeah. it gets a little bit later on like incrementally yeah. better over the next two installments but still Halle Berry who uh, what the year after this, or the couple years after this, wins an Oscar herself. Uh, you know, it's yeah, in between yeah. one and two, Ex- she got exactly. The Oscar. So, what uh, are, what are your thoughts of the, on the supporting cast? Because I feel like, other than the three that we mentioned, Anna Paquin obviously is sort of the uh, the the twist. Also, is that Magneto is really after Rogue, not Wolverine, which I always thought was a really cool, yeah. satisfying moment. Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you feel about a lot of the supporting cast? Mm-hmm. Because these are the actors who some of which apparently are coming back in Deadpool 3 again, which is really, is really exciting to me. Well, and, and the thing is, it's like, I, I think if, uh, you know, I mean, to, to just sort of 
put the bow on uh, the saber tooth discussion. I think, I sure. I think if you were to try to do something closer to the comics with saber tooth in this movie, and make him a little bit more of a role than just a heavy, which is really what he and Toad are. Yeah. In this in this movie, I mean, they're basically like henchmen to the the big bad. I mean, they're the muscle. That's that's basically their purpose in this film. Um, I think if you tried to do more to integrate the reality, the comic reality of how Sabretooth and uh, Logan interact in and how they connect, I think it will have thrown off the movie. Mm-hmm. I I do think to a certain extent will have thrown off the movie. I I do think I do think Mystique is probably the next is probably the one among the villains other than Eric, who I think gets the most, the quote unquote, most character development. Um, And it's like you said, so much of her performance is visual. And I mean, part of that is because it's, uh, you know, Rebecca Romaine Stamos, who was quite stunning at the time. But the fact that I was trying to, yeah, I was trying to describe, (laughs) I was trying right. to describe I mean, Mystique in that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. go ahead. But especially because of um, that scene that she has with uh, Senator Kelly, you get enough of her, you get enough from her in terms of where she's coming from. In a way, she very much has the same, she, she feels just as isolated from humanity as Rogue does, but she's very much on board at least in this movie with what Eric is doing. And so I, I think, you know, and we see that develop even further once we get into first class and the way that those dynamics uh, carry over. And so it's really interesting. I mean, I definitely agree with you about Halle Berry. I mean, she very, Famously was given very little to do here as far as Storm. And then, you know, like you said, it did build more and more. Uh, I I think the, the dynamic between Famke Jansen and uh, James Marsden as Jean Grain Cyclops, I think they do a good job of building that up in this relation, in this one, as well mm. as setting up a potential triangle with Wolverine that is going to pay off more in X-Men 2 then it ends up doing an X-Men last stand, but there's a whole host of reasons why that didn't work. Um, But uh, no, I mean, I I think for the most part, you get some really interesting supporting characters here. And the, the glimpses of what some of these characters will be like in future installments and I think that's one of the things that is that's that's one of the things that does actually work in this movie. I mean, even for a movie that's a hundred minutes long, yeah. it does juggle things very very well. I mean, you brought up the usual suspects, and it's a it's a really good comparison. But I mean, I I think it also is you're also looking at a different form of storytelling because I mean, the way the McQuarrie's screenplay is scripted, you're basically looking at this you're basically looking at this happening through the perspective of a lone survivor who is telling you 
this story that may or may not be accurate. You know, you're you're dealing it's it's the unreliable narrator aspect. And I mean, I think the fact that now I do agree with you. I think the overall dynamics between those characters is stronger than it is in X-Men. I, I think Usual Suspects is still a tremendous film and very easily Brian Singer's best film. Um, but I mean, I think that's because of the fact that McQuarrie had the dynamics of what that narrative need to be in his script just so much stronger than even something which I, I actually don't dislike this script on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do recognize that it has issues in terms of juggling an ensemble of characters. It's also, you mentioned the runtime, which has always sort of struck me that this one and the third one are both around the same length, which is insane to me. Um, because the, the, <laughs> the thing is that I feel like this movie gets away with the 100-minute runtime because basically all it has to do is introduce all those characters, introduce their dynamics, kind of get general right. audiences who don't know who the X-Men are on board. And that's, I think, part of why the second one is so much stronger because you already know who everybody is, you already know what they stand, who they are, what they stand for, etc. And then the second one just starts and goes. Uh, and so, because this one did all the heavy lifting and I think it does a pretty yeah. decent job of setting all those, you know, to, to, uh, to make a sort of a comparison to the chessboard here, setting all those pieces up on the board, um, for, for the, the, you know, the, the franchise, but specifically this trilogy. Uh, I did want to mention also what struck me too, is that the, there's some humor in this movie there, but it's, you know, it's more on the wry side, some of it. Uh, I, there's obviously, you know, I think the, uh, the middle claw kind of Wolverine flipping off. I feel like that was also a weed in addition. I think I heard, uh, but there's that line, there's that yeah. line in there about the, uh, the, the cut. Well, well, the light, the, the lightning line, I guess we should get to that too. <laughs> I guess that's supposed to be funny. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's just like, yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's just like a giant turd in it's, the middle of the screenplay. Such, it's. <laughs> It's it's such a meta it, it it's honestly such a meta idea because of the fact that it doesn't land the same way a joke in that respect would right. would land. And I think it's one of those things where um I I think it's one of those things where you look at the way that that is delivered. I mean, it's kind of the same issue I mean, you know, Whedon did basically was brought in to rewrite the last act of this movie, but he was very critical of the script and basically did a major overhaul instead. Um, And then at the end, it basically was rejected and only two dialogue exchanges in the entire movie are Whedon's, uh, including the famous uh, what happens to a toad when it's hit by lightning. And it's like, same thing that happens. Um, else. It's like, that's such a weird, it's such a weird punchline. But I mean, the way I look at that now is it's kind of the same reason that I, I think to a certain extent, there's something lost in the translation of, uh, of that type of humor in this movie in much the same kind of way uh, what happened with uh, Alien Resurrection, which was a Whedon script. 
And one of the things that I've I certainly noticed, you know, and I this this kind of comes from reading more about that production and hearing that basically, you know, it's like you had this you had this disparity between the type of thing that John Pierre Jeunet, the director, what his sensibilities are versus Whedon's, there's such a collision in tone. I feel like there's the same thing that's happening in that. In, in this. Mm. Um, now, I mean, it's not French sensibilities versus American pop sensibilities. It's just sensibilities of how serious do you want to make this movie versus making, giving some humor to, you know, presenting some humor that will help ground the, the film. And Macquarie did do a draft in this one, too. Um, he he did come in for some rewrites, and apparently he was one of the ones who uh, was one his some of his uh, some some of his uh, some some of his uh, his contributions really are a part of the uh, really are a significant part of what we end up seeing on screen. So I mean, you know, when we look at some of the depth of some of these. Uh, supporting characters, you know, some of the times where it doesn't happen, um, you can maybe associate that to somebody else's contributions, but some of the times where it does happen, like maybe in the Logan, Jean Grey, and Cyclops dynamic, maybe that's something that um, Macquarie really did help establish stronger. Well, to that end, at one point there was a supposed to be a subplot that uh, I think Magneto was sort of uh, trying to plant the idea in the heads of the X Men that Xavier was was maybe messing with their minds or kind of getting inside their heads a little bit, which is what that line "Are you sure you saw what you saw?" was originally in reference to. Which right. I thought I always thought that was really right. interesting because it did seem kind of out of nowhere. I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? Um, the little elements yeah, like that, yeah. If you, yeah, because I mean, if you take it in solely context of what you see in the film, it doesn't make sense because of the fact that I mean, why would, why would Xavier put that, put that, put that as an imaginary idea into Storm's head, you know? And he wasn't even anywhere around there when that happened. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, that, I mean, it it doesn't exactly work as well, but I mean, I, I do think there's certainly that, that's an interesting idea, but I mean, at the same time, it also will completely, I, I think you were, I, I think you will have completely, uh, I, I think you will have completely, uh, undone a lot of the, uh, sense of morality of this film, if that truly was something that Xavier did. But I mean, like you said, it's probably, it's something where it's like, he's trying to pit the X-Men way exactly. from Xavier and try to get him on his Exactly. Side. Um, but yeah, you, you did mention the, uh, I, I did want to get to the rush time or the, the rain times. And you mentioned that they're both, uh, both this and last sand are very much, uh, roughly the same length. I mean, you know, that's not really by that's not really by accident, I don't think, because of the fact that I mean, both films were very much rushed into production and into release. Cause I mean, 
you know, the main reason that Last Stand came out as quickly as it did when it did is because Fox was trying to deliberately beat Brian Singer to the game, to the, to theaters when he was, cause that can't, cause the last stand came out the exact same summer Superman returns did. So, I mean, they were very much trying to kind of stick it to singer in that way by getting their third X-Men film in first. So it was a very rushed thing. And on top of which, I mean, they they went through uh, different different um, their own production issues after Singer left because, you know, you may remember the first person who was originally going to do Last Stand was yeah. Matthew Vaughn, who ended up doing First Class. And then he dropped out, and then that's when uh, they brought Ratner in at the last second. It's it's a weird uh, baton passing situation with this franchise because I think then he did first class and then I believe he was going to do Days of Future Past but then I think as I recall and then I might be wrong about this but then I feel like then Brian Singer was like oh I want to come back and then they were like okay Vaughn you're out Singer come back but yeah I mean if you're if you're Fox why would you not want the person who really started the X Men franchise back. I mean, and there are a lot of reasons now that you wouldn't you would say, yeah, I don't want him back. <laughs> but I mean, the the fact of the matter is, it's like he's his his name is as synonymous with this franchise as any. Well, he did four out of the the ten movies I'm going to be talking about. So yeah, um, I, I, I'm yeah. for you know, and also among you know of those four, I'd say uh, two or at least in my top three or four of this franchise too. Like he did some of the better ones. So I don't know, you know, his personal life aside, just like, that's just just the way it is. Like strictly by the work. uh, He just, uh, he has a certain connection to this franchise and this character is that, that really works well. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to also talk about in this movie, the, uh, we were, you know, we were talking about the humor. One thing that really struck me, that I think played well at the time, but weirdly Marvel is still doing, um, is the kind of calling out how ridiculous all the comic book stuff is. Where he's like, oh, this is Aurora Monroe, oh, also yeah. called Storm, and Scott Summers, also called Cyclops. And he's like, what do they call you, Wheels? <laughs> or like, oh, what is it, you kicking, you're kidding me with these outfits? It's like, would you prefer yellow spandex? Which I think at the time made sense, because like we were saying, this is an age where you had to like, kind of disguise that you're doing this geeky comic book stuff on the big screen and be like, all right, we'll put them in leather and like, we'll make it all really grounded so that people who are, who are not bought into the comic books, they'll have a way into this stuff. But now it seems kind of ridiculous that Marvel is still kind of doing that in things. Uh, it's yeah. we're all bought in, you know, there's three guardians movies. There's three Ant-Man movies. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it seems like it's time to drop that. What did, what did you, what did your take on that sort of self-effacing comic book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I, I definitely, uh, I, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I do think there's, you know, it worked at the time because of the fact that, I mean, especially in the late nineties, early two thousands, I mean, there was definitely a, you know, I mean, that was, you know, it was when Gen X was kind of becoming, you know, we were, you know, Gen X, we, us and Gen X were uh, really starting to, you know, be, 
become young adults and stuff like that. And we had a uh, very self-effacing sense of humor about things and very sarcastic sense of humor about such things. So I, I apologize um, <laughs> for, for my generation <laughs> for that. But um, no, I mean, I, I think it's one of those things where, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's sometimes, you know, I mean, and look, it, it really just depends on the, uh, it really depends on the filmmaker and yeah. the writer as to whether you can pull that off. I, I do think James Gunn can pull that off because James Gunn has shown that he can pull that off. And one of the things I do love about his Guardians movies is the fact that um, he's he's not afraid to push the boundaries of uh, humor mm. in, in, in these superhero movies while also playing to a lot of the tropes in them, too. And I, I think he's one of the few that really can make that work. Um, you know, Brian Singer, I, I don't necessarily think he can work. He can, he can make it work. Um, I, I do think, you know, it's like, yeah, you're right at the time. The, the, what would you expect? What would you prefer? A yellow spandex thing? Yeah, it's like that's You know, it made sense at the time, but it's so silly now <laughs> when you consider the fact that people did believe and people did appreciate what happened when you saw them in the yellow spandex in uh, first right. class. And as as that area, I think in that chronology, I I think you you definitely see saw them really appreciate the uh, ode to the classic comics. So it was also when this film came out, there was I don't even think any of us even expected them to be in those outfits because they were like, oh, they would never do that. Like, that's not going to happen. In the movie, that they, they would never have, you know, mm-hmm. Batman gets away with his costume because it's literally all black or very, very dark gray, to quote Lego Batman. Um, but but now now we're living in a time where for the last at least decade, people have been like, put Hugh Jackman in the yellow suit. I guarantee you we're going to see yellow, Hugh Jackman in that yellow suit in Deadpool 3. And it's going to be it's going to be yeah. glorious. We're all going to be like, finally, 25 years later, we finally got him in that freaking thing. Um, but yeah, it just, it just struck me as yeah. funny because it feels like this is, again, the first Kevin Feige Marvel movie, the first one he was involved in at all as associate producer, like I said, the first real kind of predecessor to the MCU. Uh, and it feels like that you can see those, that DNA kind of already uh, already in its nascent stage here with little elements like that. And I thought that was pretty funny. Um Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, think about uh, Spider-Man. I think it, yeah, it, it is Spider-Man three, where uh, after Peter Parker is his first uh, fight with Sandman, it, it's like he's he's getting sand out of his his yeah. uh, boot, and he's like, where are these guys <laughs> yeah. coming from? Good stuff. And so, like, it it's that self-effacing humor, but again, that's Sam Raimi, who's able to uh, pull it off. So yeah, it's it's one of those things where uh it's it's just a uh it's a different situation and I mean it really depends on the individuals to whether it works out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um I also we haven't really talked much about the action in this thing. How do you feel like Brian Singer handles the action as far as the X-Men facing off cuz I I do feel like the character dynamics and the the subtext, as it were, I think he gets that really well, and that's how why we're emotionally engaged with these characters, and that carries them through to the next film. 
the action I feel like is is decent, but also very dated for the most part. I feel like in this thing, uh, it, you know, we have the train station sequence. I think actually, ironically, the most thrilling sequence in this movie is the standoff outside uh, with Magneto, where he has all the cops on him and he stops all the yeah. all the guns. Yeah. Uh, what are your, what do you, how do you, you know, thoughts on the train station? It's, and it's also, there's not a lot of action, really. There's the little bit of, uh, no, there's a kind of a no. face off with, uh, in the snow with Sabretooth briefly when, and Wolverine, uh, and then it's the train station and then the Magneto standoff. And then there's some fighting with Wolverine Mystique and Wolverine and Sabretooth. And then we're done. Um, but it's all like back. Yeah. I yeah, mean, they're back-load. like, like you yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think for the most part, the action in this movie is very, uh, it's very tentative. Yeah. I, I, I think even the big set pieces that we get, I, I think the I think I think the strongest, I do agree with you that I think the, the most tension is built in the Magneto standoff outside of the Definitely. train station. That's, that's easy. But again, it's playing off of that dynamic that we've already established with Xavier and Eric. Uh, the opening, the the first scene in the snow. I mean, that's it's it's very yeah, it's okay, but it's not really it. You kind of get the feeling of what some of the what some of the powers are, but that's really it. You don't really feel a whole lot of tension there. Um, inside the train station, I mean, it's you know, it's okay. And then the Statue of Liberty, I think there are some good moments. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that standoff outside of the train station and and the Wolverine Mystique yeah. fight. Yeah. Even though there there's the I, I do think that the the transition from uh Wolverine to Mystique in that is very silly. <laughs> uh but I, I think a big part of that is I think a big part of the reason why I'm not sure how well the action in this movie works is because of the fact that uh, Singer is not working with his typical editor, and uh, that is John Ottman. And John Ottman is somebody who is an editor as well as a composer. He composed the music for Singer's previous scores. Uh, He was unable to work on this because of the fact that he had committed to directing uh, Urban Legends Final Cut. Um, and I guess originally uh, Singer did approach Williams to do the score for this, but Williams turned it down because of scheduling conflicts. And then they went to Mark Michael Kamen, who is one mm-hmm. of the greats. Uh, I, I've always been a big fan of Kamen's score here. Um I, I think he's he's one of the most unheralded uh, great composers. I mean, he part of it is he died way too early. He died in uh, 2003, I that believe. That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, and he had, he had also done, I believe he had done the uh, scores of the Iron Giant. And so he was, uh, and so he, he had had in, in with Brad Bird, um... And then uh, when, you know, and then when uh, he passed away before The Incredibles, that's where Brad Bird went to uh, Michael Giacchino instead. And, um, yeah, he, he did do The Iron Giant. So, um, but Michael Kamen, I mean, terrific action composer. He did the Lethal Weapon movies. 
He did the uh, Die Hard. He did the original Die Hard. He he's a really he was a really well established action composer. And uh, so I mean I I do think he did a decent job here. I I think his themes, uh, especially for Mystique, mm-hmm. his theme for Rogue and Logan, I think are really I think those are really strong. Um, I think some of the action stuff again is kind of spotty, but I guess. Uh, I guess he had to rewrite the score using fewer themes, which is disappointing here because I'm sure he would have absolutely crushed it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think the uh, fact, but I mean, John Ottman was back with uh singer for X-Men too. And you can definitely tell in that case, the editing is so much crisper. The editing is so much tighter and there's so much more exciting uh, sequences. I mean, you can see it alone in that uh, great opening sequence in X Men mm-hmm. Two. Yeah, I, I I wanted to mention Michael Kamen as well because uh, I do think his score here is pretty underrated. I don't know if it's just that I've seen this movie so much over the years, or because I have the um, multiple X Men soundtracks on CD that I've had since the movies came yeah. out. So, because like when you were mentioning those themes, I'm like playing them in my head. It's like I they they're they're memorable enough that I they they did make they do make an impression. That's why it's also unfortunate that he only does the first one, and because then John Ottman when he comes in for X two, that theme I think kind of wipes you know kind of wipes clean the the slate. I feel like is and is sort of the kind of generally regarded as the most recognizable X-Men theme, the one that we get in X2 that reappears again in Days of Future Past and uh, Apocalypse, I believe. I think he did both of those. Yeah. Yeah, he he did. Um, Because, I mean, he's a a long-time collaborator with Singer. Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely agree about, uh, you know, it being disappointing that Oppmann kind of does away with a lot of the ideas that Kamen does in this one. But at the same time, I don't want to disparage. Oh, no, no. I, I, think I think his work a, is incredible. Yeah, I, I think he's a phenomenal composer, and I think he's a fantastic editor. I mean, uh, you, you look at, especially his work in The yeah. Usual Suspects is an excellent example yeah. of that. No, absolutely. No, I, I wasn't meaning to do that, obviously. I actually think John Powell's work in Last Stand is really good. Uh, it's much stronger than the film in which it's featured. And... Um, I, yeah, I, yeah I, I think it's three different composers with three very different takes on X-Men music. And it's just, yeah, it feels like because mm-hmm. Ottman has that connection with Singer and comes back a few times with the same theme, I feel like most people don't even can, don't even consider or forget what Kamen's contribution was to the franchise. And that's why I feel like, I'm like, ah, like yeah. that's, that's unfair. He put it, he, he did... I, some I good do stuff agree. There. I, I very much agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, I wanted to say briefly, with regards to the action we were talking about uh, already, I, I I did know I did think it's really cool that little bit of editing that we have the Wolverine Mystique fight and then we have the Storm uh, Toad thing and then it cuts right to Storm coming into Wolverine uh, and we obviously think it's Storm that we just saw kill Toad, and it turns out to be Mystique. I think yeah. that lets a little bit of a little bit of uh, editing misdirection that I really appreciate. That always has yeah. sells that moment a little bit stronger when it's Storm, not Wolverine, mm-hmm. that ends up being Mystique in disguise. I, I love that that kind of uh, flip of expectations. Oh yeah, that was yeah that is that is a terrific moment. And of course, um, we have not mentioned 
who plays Toad. We haven't. The the great yeah. Ray Park, um, who we just saw the year before as Darth Maul. And um yeah, I mean he you know, it's like 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 I said with Sabretooth, they're they're essentially the muscle for Eric in this movie. Yeah. And I mean it's a shame that we don't get a fuller picture of these characters, but at the same time, I mean I, I think that I think one of the things that this film to a certain extent kind of had to do because a lot of because audiences were not completely familiar with how comic books operate in terms of good guys, bad guys, and oh, bad guys can come back. Oh, bad yeah. guys beget other bad guys and all of that stuff. I, I think one of the things that structurally speaking, this movie does do is that it really plays to the action movie tropes of the time. And I, I think that is a big part of the reason why it is more accessible and why this found an audience because, um, because of the fact that I, I do think to a certain extent they realized that, well, the best way for audiences to get into a movie like this is to give them a story that they might be familiar mm -hmm. with or in a way that might, they might be familiar with. And this very much plays like the type of action, high concept action movies we saw in the eighties and nineties. And, but with a little extra added sense of morality in the way that it sets the tone of, since sets the overall arc of the series as being Xavier versus Magneto and their sense of right and wrong versus, and then populating it with everybody else in, in the middle. Yeah. I think it's also because we know that there's this antagonistic relationship, but also this deep bond between Magneto and Xavier T to me. Yeah. And you can tell me if you think I'm reading too much into this. It's that's, it's why mystique, infiltrates the school, sabotages Cerebro, instead of just, you know, laying waste <laughs> to Professor X or some of the students, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a mutual respect there that you see later yeah. on, particularly, spoilers, in Last Stand when uh, Phoenix decimates Char uh, Professor X, you see, there's a few lines from Magneto where he's like, you know, he says something like... Um, my greatest regret is that he had to die for our dream to live. That kind of thing. He did so much for mutants or whatever. I, I think yeah. there's a lot. There's a there's yeah. a mutual respect and, and deep friendship there, that is sort of somehow somehow simultaneously is existing with them having to l play literal chess with their soldiers. They're like two generals who have their soldiers fighting at each other, and but they're sort of there's a level of removal that they have where they're able to still be friends, even though they're sort of in the midst of this constant battle. And I think that's, it's really, uh, it's really interesting. Did you ever think that about Mystique with Cerebro? Because I'm like, if she could get in there. Why doesn't she just, you know, if she was really that evil, like take it to the next Well, step. I mean, I, I think the fact that I, I don't know that I read that much into it, but I mean, we certainly, I, I think they certainly allowed room for that to be the interpretation yeah especially when you consider what we saw later in how they build that dynamic between Charles Xavier, between 
Charles, Eric, and Mystique in first class in that era of the X-Men stories. So, I mean, I do think they certainly allowed for that. But yeah, I mean, like you, like you said, this is a chess match and there is, I, I think to a certain extent, there is a mutual respect and there is a mutual understanding on both of both, certainly both Charles and Eric's part that they don't want to, they, they don't want to destroy yeah. each other. They, they, they do have a mutual respect for one another as individuals but, you know, it's because of the fact that they are similar in a lot of ways. The one thing that they are very different in is their sense of morality when it comes to how humanity treats uh, treats mutants in general. And Charles sees it as a possible learning experience for humanity, and Eric sees it as... Humanity is just going to do the same thing that they have always done when it comes to the mm-hmm. other, when it comes to people that they perceive as different and that how that difference makes them uncomfortable. It's the reason why that ending of this film is so effective, because it's now Magneto and the plastic prison, which I love. The, I love the plastic prison. I love that they have to... As you see in the second yeah. one, they're like it's uh, they get scanned and it removes all the metal. It's all that stuff so cool, so cool. It's like they start figuring out like, okay, yeah. well, <laughs> we have to be a little a little smarter than we approach this guy. Um, but you see them playing chess. He, Charles goes to visit him and they play chess, and he lays the the king down. He's like, I guess I'm defeated for now. There's even a little bit of a tease to. I feel like it's a it's a direct tease to Stryker, where he's talking. Uh, Charles says about I feel a great swell of pity for the. The, you know, the poor soul who comes to that school looking for trouble, which is, you know, the first act of the first of the next movie. Uh, and Logan goes off to Alkali yeah. Lake with Cyclops's motorcycle. Rogue gets the white streak in her hair, all that good stuff. Um, is there anything else about mm-hmm. X-Men 2000 that you want to talk about before we start uh, winding down? Uh, not really. I mean, it's funny. I haven't really. It's funny. I just rewatched it this morning and I, I, I took notes like yeah. I usually do. But I mean, I, I didn't really feel the need to really go into anything that I particularly wrote about, be, took notes on just because of the fact that, I mean, I, I think that what what you and I have talked about with regards to this, I mean, it gets, gets to the heart of what this okay. movie, why this movie connected with me in terms of the larger ideas and themes the stories and also why it doesn't necessarily hold up to a certain extent as much as some later uh, superhero movies. Yeah. It was a stepping stone for the genre and the the foundation for this franchise, which uh, has, as we've alluded to several times, is going to be completely rebooted uh, in the next few years. And it should be interesting to see how the, what foundation they lay for those characters and how they, what lessons they learn from the Fox iteration of X-Men and, uh, you know, what they are go out of their way to either emulate or avoid uh, with the MCU version. But, but yeah, so what do you think that the X-Men franchise, the film franchise of X-Men, what does it contribute to cinema? What's the legacy of, if you had to summarize, what's the legacy of the X-Men movie series here? 
Um, I, I think the biggest legacy is obviously the uh, modern uh, superhero movie boom. Uh, I, I think it paved the way for uh, superhero movies to really uh, come into their own after they kind of crashed and burned with the uh, original Superman movies with Christopher Reeve, as well as the uh, Batman movies, both of what both of the Batman franchises, both of which basically were diminish cases of diminishing returns as they uh, gone to their third and fourth films. I mean, I think it definitely pointed the direction of, okay, superhero movies can work. We just have to rethink how we're approaching them. Um, I mean, you do see that, especially in, uh, X-Men two, which I, I do think is one of the best, uh, superhero movies we've yeah. seen um you know and i but yeah as far as and i think it did to a certain extent it i i think in the amount of directions it is pulled itself into i think to a certain extent it uh it it's very much responsible for the mcu in a way, because of the fact, I mean, I, I think it it is something where by the time Iron Man came out, we only had three. But the time the Avengers came out, we had five movies in this franchise because we had the X-Men, X2, X-Men Last Stand, and then you had X-Men Origins. Then you had X-Men First Class, which really started to turn things around again after the uh, relative... Um, low points of Wolverine and uh, last stand. So, I mean, I, I think it, I, I think one of the things that Kevin Feige probably learned and maybe it's something he took from the Donners um, is quality mm. control and trying to, and, and basically, you know, and I, I think that, you know, I think to a certain extent, he's still kind of learning that. I mean, I, I think we've, we've seen quotes and we've seen, uh, personal ruminations where, you know, maybe they were trying to, they're spraying themselves too thin with phase four and, you know, just trying to do too much in too short a time. I mean, I think to a certain extent, you can definitely say that with the, uh, X-Men movies. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a compl, but I think ultimately it's a complicated legacy because of the fact that, I mean, this is a franchise where, you know, they're some of the best movies are ones where the filmmakers were kind of given free reign to do what they want. And some of the worst ones are the ones where they're arguably the most compromised in specific in needing to do specific things. And I, I, I think that's one of the I, I think that's one of the uh, biggest uh, takeaways from the X-Men movies. Yeah, it's it's the reason that this was such a this was a franchise I was so excited to start de- uh, diving into because it's such a wide range of uh, quality across the board. It's like some of the worst superhero movies and some of the best in the same run. And because it like it, you know, it's it's a proto MCU in so many different ways. Um, we sort of, I guess, mentioned a little bit here and there throughout the, the conversation, but what because this is 10 movies that we're covering, 
uh, I'm not going to ask you for a, a ranking exactly, but do you have a sort of general sense of these are some of the best, these are some of the worst? Do you have anything resembling a ranking? Uh, for the most part, I mean, there are a couple of these I haven't seen yeah. in a while. Like, I haven't seen X-Men Origins Wolverine in a while. I haven't seen that since theaters. I haven't seen X-Men Last Stand since theaters, I don't think. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like trying to, you know, I and I, the thing is, I did really like Wolverine X-Men Origins yeah. when it came out. I, you know, but I know that's an unpopular opinion. So it's like, yeah, I, I don't hate it as much as some people. I, feel about I don't it. love it. I think there's there are some things in it that, again, there are some things in it that that are interesting that have potential like i said leave schreiber as Sabretooth is one way in which that is a yeah. huge improvement over tyler main's Sabretooth. so i like that aspect of it uh there's just a lot of weird decisions uh in that movie that we'll i'll get to when i get to but what, what are some of the ones that i guess stick with you uh what would you consider like your let's say top three of this franchise so i think my top three are i mean the obvious top one is logan yeah. I mean, the, the only one that's been nominated for an Oscar uh, for writing. And uh, it's it's just such a beautiful, you know, it, it's just such a beautiful uh, story and, you know, kind of send off for that version of Logan. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm curious what we're going to see with Deadpool 3 with uh, Hugh Jackman coming back. I mean, you know. You, you deep down, you hope that that was going to happen because of the great way that Deadpool um, teases, you know, Logan in uh, and how much he likes Logan in the Deadpool yeah. movies. But I mean, yeah, I, I think I think the top three for me are Logan, I think X-Men 2 and I think yeah. Days of Future Past. Yeah, those are the ones for me as well. I feel like those are the clear, like if yeah. you if I was doing t uh like say t a tiered system for these ten movies, those are the three that are in the top tier, like without question. And then some of the yeah. other ones might be like in a little bit in between tiers here and there, but it's like those are the three that I feel like are sort of unimpeachable. Like this is how you make an X Men movie. Uh, and and you know yeah, yeah I mean I I yeah I mean I I think the next tier for me I mean. I know you're not necessary. I know you're not including the uh, Deadpool right. movies, but I mean, I would put the next tier. I would put first class. I would put the first Deadpool, and I would put the and I would put X Men Two Thousand. Mm. I I I do think it's for all its faults. I think the the first X Men does deserve mention in at least the top half of the yeah, franchise. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think um, yeah. I I I have a sense that. Deadpool 3, they'll either shrug off the fact that Logan is in it after dying in Logan, or it'll be like sort of a Black Widow situation where it's an interquel, I guess is what they called that, where it happens between other movies. I have a feeling that they'll just have Ryan Reynolds be like, yeah, it's all, you know, different timelines, multiverses, whatever you need to tell yourself, and then they'll just move on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, they've, I think they basically already said as much that it's like, yeah, you don't have to worry about this kind of impeding on where Logan went. It's like, this is, this is, this is very much its own thing. And yeah, you don't necessarily <laughs> have to worry about it. I, I do think they are going more the, uh, the black widow, yeah. uh, realm than, uh, with that. So I, I could even see them sort of, uh, having that scene from Logan at the end, 
having Deadpool come out like he's going to pretend to to pick it up from there and then just move on to something else. But it's also Logan, the movie that gave, I think, at least for me, the utmost confidence. And he's already, you know, pretty solid, a very stellar filmmaker at this point that man, they mangled could handle Indiana Jones that he like felt like the right guy for it yeah. after Logan. And he's done a lot of good movies. It's not that that was his first movie, but it was similar, like a, a, an iconic character oh, yeah. sort of the end of his journey, uh, sort of, a you know, that, that type of story. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what dial of destiny turns out to be. And it'd be interesting to see what the Marvel does with the X-Men film. So we'll see. That's all I have got. Brian, thank you so much for, for coming on to talk about the first X-Men. I know we ran uh, a little bit long as we tend to do, but it's always the first one of the franchise. I think that kind of gets stuck on because you're, you have to lay so much groundwork, uh, and history. And before you actually talk about the movie itself, it just kind of gets, it's par for the course at this point, but tell people where they can find you on social media. Uh, well, I mean, main place for my, uh, reviews and otherwise is www.sonic-cinema.com. I, I, I tend to have at least one review, whether it's an older movie or a newer movie up, uh, up a week. So, I mean, I've, and you know, with the summer movie season, you know, there's definitely going to be a lot of times where, uh, it's, there's going to be a lot going on. Um, social media, you can find me on Twitter at S K U T L E L E M U R scuttle lemur. Um, you can find me on Instagram at B M scuttle. And it's like there, I mean, yes, I, I do go through a lot of personal stuff, but I also talk about a lot of movie stuff. I talk about things that interest me about particular movies, the way I connect with particular movies or particular movie experiences. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a worthwhile place too. You can also find my original music at Bandcamp as well as a plenty, plenty of other streaming services. And uh, obviously at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. As awesome. Well. well, thank you, my friend, for coming on and helping me kickstart this uh, epic X Men mega series. Uh, it's been a blast as always. We'll definitely have you back soon. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Big thanks to Brian Scuttle from the Sonic Cinema Podcast for coming on to discuss 2000's X Men, uh, a film that I think. I often gets weirdly forgotten in this franchise, even though it did change the way general moviegoers saw superhero movies in general, certainly Marvel films, as we discussed. But uh, just because it's it's kind of a very solid film, maybe not widely considered among the best, but certainly not widely considered among the worst, just kind of middle of the road, I think, for general fans. Uh, but I want to know, what are your thoughts on the original X-Men film from 2000? When did you see this one? Where would you put it with this franchise? We're going to go through nine more X-Men movies on this uh, mega series. As I mentioned, everything but the Deadpools and New Mutants because, come on. I want to know your X-History. Find me on Twitter at Crooked Table. Same handle on Instagram via email at robert at crookedtable.com. To clarify, by X-History, I mean your history with the X-Men, not your dating history. I don't need your list of X's. Save that for your therapist. Uh, just... Just Marvel Mutants only. <laughs> so don't don't slide into my DMs with all your drama. Uh, for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll be back next episode with 2003's X2 X-Men United. Uh, that's going to be a really fun conversation, so I can't wait for you all to hear that. But for now, catch you at the next stop, everyone.
This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. <laughs> <laughs>